Thanks, Claire. Well, again, uh, my name is Bill Gorman, and I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus. And welcome to all of you. Thanks for worshiping with us uh, here together corporately uh, this morning. And uh, we're continuing our trek through the book of Hebrews. We started uh, this back at the first of the year, and we're going to be continuing to spend a lot of time uh, in the book of Hebrews. If you were uh, with us uh, all throughout last year when we were doing um, following along with Open Here and reading through the entire Bible, we were turning these pages really fast. Um, I haven't turned my page in my Bible yet. We're still on the same page for three weeks, which is, which is pretty great. Um, and so as we uh, take some time and look at this text in uh, Hebrews chapter to this morning. Um, let's pause and ask for God's help to understand it. Um, Father in heaven, we know that apart from uh, your illumining uh, ministry, the, the work that your spirit does to make uh, your word come alive, um, that these, these words just set dead on the page. And so um, I know that, that I alone, um, that my words that, uh, can't, can't do anything here apart from the work of your spirit in uh, each one of our lives. And so we ask now that your spirit would um, be living and active uh, as you've promised that your, your word is, um, bringing these words to life um, and, and revealing to us um, the truth uh, of who Jesus is even more clearly this morning. We want to see Jesus this morning, Father. Um, that is our desire. So help us uh, to see you more clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to do a little bit of a thought experiment here this morning uh, and just ask you the question, just to, just to ponder, think about this. What do you want in a God? Uh, so just think about that for a moment. If you were looking for a God, what, what would you want in your God? And, and I actually want to just take, take a minute, take some time to, to think about that. Let's just say, you know, uh, you were looking for a new God. You're taking applications. Uh, you're looking to change. Um, your current God isn't really doing it for you. Um, what would you want in a replacement? Uh, now, I know if you're a Christian, try to think outside the box a little bit here. And even if you're here this morning as, as a skeptic uh, or, or even as an atheist, I mean, you can kind of play along with this too. Just think for a moment, what would you want in a God? So take a moment, picture it. Okay. Um, now, of course, doing this is somewhat ridiculous, right? If we were really in charge of deciding who God was, it would be us, right? Wouldn't we pick us uh, at the end of the day all the time? Um, but, but isn't that kind of what we do? That we all have sort of an image of God in our minds, an idea about what God is like or what he isn't like? Because even if you're here this morning as someone who's, who's skeptical of the church uh, or can considers himself an atheist or an agnostic, you probably have some pretty specific ideas about the sort of God that you don't believe in or that couldn't exist or wouldn't exist, right? And all of us tend to pick and choose, not necessarily consciously or, or intentionally, but we tend to pick and choose those parts of, of a God that we would want, of, of those parts of, of Jesus that we like. And, and the problem is, is that if we're not careful, we'll have a Jesus or a God of our own making, that we will make him into our image rather than the other way around, and I, and I want to show you a classic example of this. And, and forgive me, I'm going to show you a clip. Uh, it, the clip is actually terribly irreverent. Um, and, and as you watch it, you should be a little offended by what you're going to see. Um, I am. Uh, but I think it's a perfect example. It was worth risking to show on a Sunday morning because I think it's a perfect example of what all of us do. So take a look at this. Now, you may think to yourself, I, I, I don't do that. Uh, I, I wouldn't do that. Um, but here's the question that always gets me. Because it, what we, we just form, have we had these kind of, well, I like to picture Jesus as, right? Well, do we do that with any other people and get away with it, right? Well, 
honey, I like to think of you as. No, no, there's a real person that we have to reckon with here. And the question that always gets me that kind of undermines my thought when I begin to wonder, am I making God in my image? Am I just doing one of these, I like to think of Jesus as? Is this, when, when was the last time that your God offended you? Told you something you didn't want to hear? Made you uncomfortable? ask you to stop doing something you like doing or start something, doing something you, you don't want to do. And if you're having trouble thinking of a time, then there's a good chance that you've created Jesus in your own image. Because if we change that question to when was the last time your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your parents or your spouse or your coworker offended you, told you something you didn't want to hear, made you uncomfortable, asked you to start doing something you didn't want to do or stop something you liked doing... I bet a lot of examples come to mind right away, right? Because these are real people with with real personalities, with real relationships that you can't just make into your own image. And the early church was still trying to figure out who Jesus was as the book of Hebrews was being written. It was really actually probably more of a sermon delivered at first that was then written down into a letter form. But actually, they were wrestling with these things as well, trying to figure out who exactly Jesus was. But in a sense, it was harder for them, right? Because they didn't have 2,000 years of of Christian thought and reflection. Um, They didn't have the benefit of the New Testament. They were being written the New Testament at that time. And the book of Hebrews is written to second-generation Christians. We always have to keep this in mind. These are people who, who didn't personally witness the resurrection of Jesus, but they knew eyewitnesses who had. So it's written to second generation Christians. And they came to know people, or they came to know Jesus from the people who had seen him raised from the dead, who had spent time with Jesus both before he had died and after he had been raised from the dead. And they had the Old Testament prophecies about a coming Messiah, that they encountered Jesus, and they encountered Jesus through his spirit, but they didn't have a lot of clarity about who he was. And what we've been saying these last few weeks is that they were at risk of drifting, drifting away from who Jesus actually was. And the thing is, is that we are all at risk of drifting, at risk of drifting from the one true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, into a God of our own making. And so all throughout this, this letter, all throughout this sermon that this, this author is writing, the book of Hebrews, the author is constantly spelling out who Jesus is, reminding them that they can't do better than Jesus. That Jesus is greater than anything else. Remember that word better, greater, superior occurs over and over and over again in the book of Hebrews. And so this morning, as we look at the rest of Hebrews chapter 2, we we started looking at the first part last week, we're going to see this, that the God you really need is nothing like you and everything like you. That the God you really need is nothing like you and everything like you. See, the God we imagine tends to either be too much like us or not enough like us. Most heresies actually through church history about who Jesus was are a result of either one of those two things, thinking that Jesus is too much like us or not enough like us. We want a God who is close enough to like and dislike the same things that we do, right? But, but who's far enough not to really meddle too much in our lives, right? Distant enough to kind of mind his own business and not get too involved. But the thing is, is a God like that can never rescue you. A God like that can never save you. The only God who can save is the God who is nothing like us and yet who is everything like us. And so this morning, the the book of Hebrews in chapter 2, the preacher is going to show us how Jesus is nothing like us. He's going to show us how Jesus is everything like us. And then lastly, how Jesus is exactly who we need. So that Jesus is nothing like us, everything like us, 
and exactly who we need. So first, Jesus is able to save us. He's able to rescue us and the world in which we live because he's nothing like us. He's nothing like this. And why? Why is that so significant? Why is that so important? Because when we look at the magnitude of the brokenness in our world, and, and even more significantly, perhaps, the magnitude of the brokenness and the selfishness and self-centeredness of our own hearts, uh, as well as the parts of the people who are closest to us, right? Anyone that you've actually lived with, you know how selfish they are, right? Whether it's in your dorm room or your bedroom or in the house. When you know that level <laughs> of selfishness in people, in your own heart, and the hearts of others, we know instinctively that the person who rescues us from this, they've got to be utterly different than us. They can't be plagued with the same self-centeredness. They can't be plagued with the same selfishness if they're going to actually pull us out. They have to come from outside the system. You see, a sick person's body benefits from a blood transfusion because the blood is coming from outside of them. It's coming from someone who's healthy, who isn't sick. It isn't plagued with the disease, and, and therefore it can help. We need someone to come who isn't plagued with the disease. Someone who is nothing like us, who is able to heal us, to make us well. And this is what the author of Hebrews says is exactly what we have in the person of Jesus. And so where do we see this in the text? Turn with me. If you have a Bible, grab it. And there's some pew Bibles as well. Pull a Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Again, it's on page uh, 1002 in the pew Bibles. I want to show you where this is at in the text We've already heard verses 14 through 18 read, but I want to back up to chapter 2, verse 5. So we're going to back up a few verses here. And the author writes this. Again, he's been making this argument that we looked at last week, that Jesus is superior even to the angels. And then he picks that up in verse 5, and he says, Now it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? We have made for a little while lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor and put everything in subjugation under his feet. And the point that the author is making in those verses is that Jesus, not the angels, is the one who's going to rule over the world to come and the one who rules over this world even now. And he quotes Psalm 8, which John and the band sung for us earlier, and he introduces it kind of with this odd formula where he says, it's written somewhere. And we almost stop and say, does he just not know his Bible that well? Can he not remember um, who it was? But the point here really is the author, when he says that, he realizes that God is the one who speaks in all the scriptures. And so the identity of the person who uttered the words is is actually relatively unimportant. It's, It's elevating the fact that these are actually God's words when he makes that remark. And then next in the following verses, in the second half of verse 8 and verse 9 and 10 and 11, he continues to highlight how Jesus is nothing like us. So look at verse 8. He says, Now he put everything in subjugation to him, and he left nothing outside of his control. Okay, so that's, that's nothing like me, because um, pretty much nothing is in my control. Um, so in verse 9, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. No other being receives more glory and honor than Jesus. Jesus tasted death for everyone, it says. Again, nothing nothing like me. Verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Again, last time I checked, um, 
Nothing in the world existed because of me or exclusively for me. So again, Jesus is nothing like me in that respect either. But the author doesn't stop. He keeps going. Verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And again, this word sanctified is kind of a a word, a churchy word, but it means to make holy. It means to make someone holy. Jesus has the power to make people holy, to forgive their sin, to make them pure. Jesus has the power to actually undo addictions, to uproot entrenched habits. That's nothing like me. I don't have that kind of power. So clearly, Jesus is nothing like us. And these are just a few examples from this text, but this is the point the authors been making all throughout the book of Hebrews so far, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, right? He says that, that he's the heir of all things, that Jesus is the creator of the world, the radiance of God's glory. He's God's final word, God's perfect revelation of himself to us. He's superior in every way to the angels. Jesus, in this sense, is nothing like us. And so the question for us to stop and, and ask in this moment, just to pause, is to say, Is your God too much like you? Is your God able to cross your will? Is he able to challenge you? Is he able to tell you things about yourself that you would rather not hear? About your relationships? About how you spend your money? About how you use power and influence? You see, only a God who is other, who is utterly different than us, is, is worthy of worshiping. Only, uh, only a God who is other, only a God who is so different, who is so untainted by sin, is the one who can save us. But as essential as this is, I think most of us probably get that, that, that God is different from us, that, that we need even a God who is different than us. But that actually is not the main thing that the author is, is trying to get across in this passage. That's not the main focus of this text. The main thing that the author is trying to communicate here is is something different. Let's think back to our blood transfusion analogy for a moment. Because while you need blood that's different from yours, you need healthy blood, blood that isn't sick, the blood can't be too different, right? I mean, as much as your dog may love you, he can't give you a blood transfusion. And even a blood transfusion from another human being, it has to be the right blood type, right? Otherwise, it can cause you to go into shock and even die. So the point that the author is making in this chapter is what, and it comes out most clearly here, is that Jesus has to be everything like us. He has to be everything like us. Again, the passage later on in verses 12 through 14, the author is going to quote three different Old Testament texts, and they all show how close a relationship Jesus has with his people, how he's identified with them completely. You see, for Jesus to be able to save us, he's got to be everything like us. So let's look back at the text again and, and see where we, we see this. If you go with verses 5 through 9, which we just looked at, those all show how Jesus was just another man. Psalm 8, that he quotes there, it's a beautiful psalm that celebrates human beings' place in God's creation. Psalm 8, at the beginning at face value, it's about us as human beings. That they are made a little lower than the angels. And yet, unlike the angels, they've been made in God's image. God has crowned them with glory and honor and put them in the place of ruling over his creation. 
You see, Adam and Eve in the garden, when they were placed by God, they were, they were placed there by God as stewards, as managers over his world. But when they rebelled against God and aligned themselves with Satan, sin and death entered. But when the author quotes Psalm 8 here, he doesn't do it to highlight how high a position that human beings have in God's creation, though they do have an incredibly high position, a unique position. He actually quotes, us to, quotes it to show how low Jesus became for our sake. He descended to become like one of us. See, the first part of the book of Hebrews so far that we've looked at is showing how high Jesus is. Now, in chapter 2, the author is showing how low he became for our sake. You see, Jesus takes humanity on himself. He adds a human nature to his divine nature. And he becomes the true and better Adam. He becomes the true and better human being. The true and better you. Jesus, the second Adam, succeeds where the first Adam failed. I love how one scholar points out, he says, Jesus as the Davidic king, he's the promised king, is the ideal Israelite, and thus he is the ideal human being. Jesus lived the life that every one of us was supposed to live. And in verses 9 and 10, we, we see that Jesus also, so he's just another human, but he's also just another sufferer. He suffered just like every other human being in 9 and 10. You see this. He didn't come and live a comfortable, privileged life. He suffered, and he experienced the full brokenness and pain of the world. And in verses 9 and 14, we see that not only is he just another sufferer, he's another sufferer who actually, he died. Jesus tasted death for everyone, it says in verse 9. And through his death, he defeated death, verse 14. Jesus died just like any other human being. So the question for us at this point is, is your God too different from you? You see, a great way to keep God out is to believe that he could never really get in or that he'd even want to get in. You see, when, when God is distant, when we think of him as distant and out there and far away, he's easily ignored. He's easily disregarded. But the God who is out there far distant isn't the God of the Bible. It's never been the God of the Bible. You see, the God that the Bible reveals is the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's a personal God, a God who created you as a person, And he wants a personal relationship with you. He doesn't just stand far off. He is a person and he desires relationships with the persons he has made. In the incarnation, that's the word that Christians use to describe this process of Jesus taking on a divine, or adding a a human nature to his divine nature. In the incarnation, Jesus, while remaining fully divine, fully God, truly God, also becomes truly divine and fully and completely human. It's unbelievable. Almost, isn't it? It's amazing. Author Max Lucado uh, has a book called When God Came Near, and, and he captures in one of the chapters the kind of the gritty reality of what it means for God in Jesus to be truly, fully, completely human. And I, I want to read you kind of a, it's a longer passage, but it's, it's worth it, and I want, to, I want to read it out to you. He's such a great writer. So he, he writes this. He says, angels watched 
as Mary changed God's diaper. That truth has come home to me very much more realistically in the last month here, what that means. Angels watched as Mary changed God's diaper. The universe watched with wonder as the Almighty learned to walk. Children played in the streets with him. Jesus may have had pimples. He may have had tone deafness. Perhaps a girl down the street had a crush on him. It could be that his knees were bony. But one thing's for sure, he writes. He was, was, while completely divine, also completely human. For 33 years, he would feel everything that you and I have ever felt. He felt weak. He grew weary. He was afraid of failure. He was susceptible to wooing women. He got colds. He burped. He had body odor. His feelings got hurt. His feet got tired. His head ached. To think of Jesus in such a light is, well, it almost seems irreverent, doesn't it? It's not something we like to do. It's uncomfortable. It's much easier to keep the humanity out of the incarnation, clean up the manure from around the manger, wipe the sweat out of his eyes, pretend he never snored or blew his nose or hit his thumb with a hammer. He's easier to stomach that way. There's something about keeping him divine that keeps him distant, packaged, and predictable. And then Lucata writes, but don't do it. For heaven's sake, don't do it. Let him be as human as he intended to be. Let him come into the mire and muck of our world, for only if we let him in can he pull us out. For only if we let him in can he pull us out. And this leads us to our final point, that Jesus is exactly who we need. Jesus is exactly who we need. A great theologian of the Reformation, John Calvin, put it like this. He said, Since neither as God alone could Jesus feel death, nor as man alone could he overcome death, he coupled human nature with divine that he might win for us victory. Clothed with our flesh, he vanquished death and sin together that the victory and triumph might be ours. So what does all this mean for us? Well, the author shows us in the last part of chapter 2. And we're actually going to kind of work through it backwards. So we're going to start at, at verses 17 and 18. First, it means that he can offer forgiveness. Only Jesus can offer forgiveness. Notice verses 17 and 18. He says, Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers, more on that in a second, in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You see, all throughout the Bible, there's this theme that comes up again and again and again, namely that our sin, our rebellion against God, not only corrupts us, not only separates us from God, but that it actually brings God's wrath on us. That is, in order for God to be just, that he, he must judge the wrong that we do to one another, and supremely, he must do the wrong that we have done to him. The good news of the gospel, though, is this, that Jesus, as the God-man, takes the wrath of God that we deserve on himself. That's what the word in the text says, propitiation. That's what the word propitiation means. It means God's satisfying his wrath. 
You see, with God's wrath satisfied Jesus, we are able to be forgiven. And with Jesus as our faithful and merciful high priest, we now have access to God. You see, this was the role of of the priest. The priest was designed to be the person who went between God's people and God. And now Jesus does this in a perfect way. We're going to see this all throughout the book of Hebrews. Jesus, fully God, truly God, fully man, truly man, is now the mediator. He is the one who stands in the place of God and his people. He does it perfectly because he is that mediator. He is fully God. He is fully man. Jesus is exactly who we need. He forgives our sin and he restores us from our alienation and our corruption. Second, Jesus is exactly who we need because only he can free us from the fear of death. Did you catch that in the text when when Claire was reading earlier? It says, Since therefore the children, again, more on that in a second, share in his flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's it's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Jesus defeats death by death. I love how C.S. Lewis talks about that in the Chronicles of Narnia, right after Aslan dies on the stone table. He says, there's this deeper magic that if an innocent sufferer would die, that even death itself would begin to work backwards. In Jesus' death, death dies. And therefore, through Jesus, Jesus, or through his death, Jesus destroys the one who has the power of death. He defeats Satan. And therefore, you and I no longer have to be enslaved by the fear of death. I mean, the fear of death, it's, it's universal, right? Everyone experiences this, this fear of death. And we constantly, and, and we rightly fight against it, right? We, with our diet and exercise and medicine and surgery and transplants. But in the end, death always wins. But in Jesus, death only wins the battle, not the war. For in Jesus, the war against death has been won, and all who are in him will be raised to new life, never to die again. Jesus frees us from the fear of death. And finally, Jesus is exactly who we need because he's the only one who can make us family. Did you catch that? He talked about his brothers, the children. Jesus is exactly who we need because only he can make us family. I think this is the most stunning thing in this passage. That Jesus makes you and me, he makes us family. He adopts, we're part of his family. You know, through Jesus, the Father not only turns away his wrath, but he adopts us as his sons and daughters. He invites us into his family. So that now Jesus calls us his brothers and sisters. Unbelievable. Jesus calls us his brothers and sisters. I love how the New Living uh, Translation captures the sense of verse 11. I think it gets it right on. Listen, this is the verse 11 New Living Translation. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy, that's us, have the same father. Jesus, as well as all of us, now have the same Father. And that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. Jesus is not ashamed to call you a brother or a sister. But what what does that mean? That means that if, if we really work that truth, 
that we are a son or a daughter, that we are a brother or sister of Jesus, Father, God is our Father, if we work that truth deep into our lives, into our souls, that what actually begins to happen is their insecurities begin to melt away. Because we have such security in knowing who we really are and being able to answer the question, who, you, I, who are you? I am a son or a daughter of the king, and Jesus is my brother. I mean, how much of what we do or, or don't do is wrapped up in, in the fear of what others will think or how they will react or, or whether or not we'll be accepted? I mean, all of our lives, so much of my life, is dominated by, these, the, by the insecurities that we all face. But if you work the truth of your identity deep in, of who you really are in Jesus, you have God as your father, Jesus as your brother, and those insecurities begin to melt away. I often feel ashamed to call Jesus my brother, but he is not ashamed to call me brother. And as his brother, as his son or daughter of the father, you have an entirely new identity that reshapes everything about you. And so as we conclude the message, watch this video. If you are in Christ, you are his beloved child, with whom he is well pleased. That's why we do spiritual disciplines, not to please God, but to drive the truth of that deep into our hearts because we forget it all the time. And one of the things that we do to help us remember that, to drive that truth deep into our hearts, where, where it can begin to transform us, is through communion.